0: The turn of the 19th century was an incredible time for aviation. The next century would see an exponentially sharp increase in invention, technology, and innovation. The Wright brothers went to work in 1899, achieving almost a minute of flight time four years later in 1903 with the first powered flight. A short time later, in 1911, aircrafts were used in warfare for the first time used by the Italians against the Turks near Tripoli. By World War I, their use was widespread, and it was clear that they would impact the way war was waged. They changed how we traveled, too, expanding the global reach of individuals like never before by the end of the 1950s. That was if you could afford it. For example, in the 1860s, if you wanted to travel from New York to England, chances were you'd be sailing for Liverpool. To do that, the best-case scenario, which was finding a spot on an iron-hauled ship with a compound steam engine, would get you there somewhere between 8 and 9 days. And that was a revolution in transportation time compared to the 1830s, when it would take you somewhere between 21 and 29 days. I don't know about you, but I don't have that kind of vacation time. Because of the developments in aviation, by the 1960s, you could get from New York to London in less than seven hours. The future was coming, and it was arriving by plane. But before all of that, way back in 1892, before crowded aisle seats, the dogfights of world wars, and that first flight in North Carolina that changed everything, a pilot was born. The odds stacked against this kid were almost incalculable. Chances were, through no fault of their own, theirs would be a life of menial labor, poverty, and minimal education at best. But sometimes, when the right mix of perseverance, grit, imagination, strength, and unstoppable determination meet just a sliver of opportunity, extraordinary things happen. Sometimes, flowers blossom out of concrete. Trees grow through the stone fences built on top of them. And people who were told they could never be anything change our minds about what is possible and live the kind of life that makes us want to believe in destiny. This is the story of such a person. A pilot. This is the story of Bessie Coleman. You might not recognize that name, For a long time, her story was ignored because of her color, swept beneath the stories that made it into the history class books. Her name isn't as recognizable as Amelia Earhart, Charles Lindbergh, or Wilbur and Orville Wright, but her story is just as important and impactful. So let's remember her today. The unstoppable force. That was Bessie Coleman. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. 1892. It was the year the first public basketball game was played. Ellis Island began receiving immigrants into the U.S., The bottle cap and the first escalator were both patented. Lizzie Borden was tried for the murder of her father and stepmother and found not guilty. The Nutcracker premiered for the first time in St. Petersburg, Russia. The Coca-Cola Company became incorporated in Georgia. And a girl named Bessie Coleman was born in a one-room, dirt-floored cabin in Atlanta, Texas. I double-checked that, and yes, there really is an Atlanta, Texas. She came from a big family. She was the 10th child of 13 children. I had to do the math on that, and to have 13 children, assuming they all had a full term, you'd have to be pregnant for 117 months, which is 9.75 years. That's almost a decade of not fitting into your pants and just being uncomfortable. Bessie's grandparents had been enslaved. Her mother, Susan, worked as a housekeeper. Her father, a man of Cherokee and African-American descent, worked as a sharecropper. It wasn't easy providing for a large family. When Bessie was two years old, the family moved to Waxahachie, Texas. They had managed to save enough money to buy a quarter acre of land where they built a three-bedroom house they made with their own hands. When Bessie was six, she attended school. According to an article from PBS, that school was a segregated, one-room wooden shack a four-mile walk from home. Often, there was no paper to write on, and no pencils to write with. In 1901, her father left. Tired of the discrimination he was encountering in Texas, he believed the family would fare better in Oklahoma. Oklahoma would not become a state for six more years, and was known then as the Indian and Oklahoma Territories. When her father left for Oklahoma, his family did not accompany him. To help make ends meet, when Bessie was not in school, she helped her mother with the other children. She picked cotton during the cotton season, which was a grueling task, especially in the hot Texas sun, and she washed laundry to help bring in some extra income. Bessie had to grow up fast. Despite these challenges, Bessie loved to learn. She loved math, and she loved reading, and she often read to her mother and siblings in the evenings. She completed all eight grades. For many in that day, eighth grade is where education stopped. My own grandparents only made it through eighth grade. A big part of that was that they were from the country, and there just were no high schools for them to attend. But Bessie didn't want to stop learning. She saved all the money she could until, at age 18, she had enough to enroll at Langston University, known then as the Colored Agricultural and Normal University in Langston, Oklahoma. Langston University was an all-black university because statues barred African Americans from attending white state universities until the 1950s. Though Bessie had worked hard to get to Langston, her savings ran out after only one semester, and she could no longer afford to attend. At 23, she turned her sights north. Two of her older brothers had moved to Chicago, and she left home to join them. There were not many opportunities for Bessie. Not only was she facing discrimination as an African American and a person of Indigenous descent, she was facing discrimination as a woman, too. She ended up enrolling in the Burnham School of Beauty Culture in 1915, becoming a manicurist at a local barbershop in the south side of Chicago. That was a tumultuous time for much of the world. Because in 1914, the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria ignited World War I. A war that would take the lives of an estimated 20 million people soldiers and civilians alike. When the United States entered World War I in 1917, Bessie's brothers left to join the fight, serving in the segregated armed forces, forces that would remain segregated until 1948, three years after the end of World War II. According to the National Aviation Hall of Fame, Bessie's brothers served in France during the war and survived, returning to Chicago after the war ended. They brought back stories. Stories of places Bessie had never been. Stories of adventure. Stories of women who flew airplanes. Aviation was incredibly restrictive for women and would remain so for a long time. Few women had the opportunity to fly in the early 20th century, and those that did were typically wealthy and white. In 1910, Baroness Raymond de La Roche became the first woman in the world to obtain a pilot's license from the Aero Club of France. In 1911, Harriet Quimby became the first American woman to obtain a pilot's license from the Aero Club of America. Bessie knew she had potential. Her mind was sharp, and she was hungry for more than the world was telling her she could have. One day, her brother John was badgering her about her lack of opportunity. He had seen women pilots in France and was giving Bessie a hard time about it. According to the New York Times, he told her that black women would never fly, not like the women he had seen in France. Bessie, who had been looking for her own path to trailblaze, decided then and there that's exactly what she would do. That's it, she told him. You just called it for me. Bessie called upon the same grit she had developed while working through childhood, attaining an education in a one-room shack and moving across the country to strike out on her own. She immediately got to work. Once she set her mind to something, she didn't stop until she got it done. Bessie reached out to several pilots for lessons, but all of them either ignored her or rejected her. But for Bessie, a dead end just meant a bend in the road towards the same destination. It was time for a new plan. Sometime after moving to Chicago, Bessie had met Robert Abbott. He was a lawyer, editor, and founder of the Chicago Defender, a newspaper established in 1905 that, according to an article from PBS, grew to achieve the highest circulation of any black-owned newspaper in the US, with more than two-thirds of its readership base located outside of Chicago. Abbott told Coleman that if she really wanted to pursue a career as a pilot, she would have to go to France, as American flight schools didn't accept women, and they certainly didn't accept anyone of African-American or indigenous descent. If she wanted to learn to fly in the U.S., she would have needed someone to be willing to give her lessons, something she had already been told was not a possibility. Getting to France would be expensive and would take the kind of money that Bessie couldn't save by working in a barbershop. She took a second job managing a chili restaurant and received sponsorship through Robert Abbott and Jesse Binga, the founder of the first privately owned African-American bank in Chicago. Binga had first come to Chicago with nothing but hope and $10 in his pocket, $10 that he eventually turned into millions I wonder if Jessie saw that same drive in the young Bessie Coleman. Along with her second job, Bessie began taking French classes at night. Her applications to flight schools needed to be written in French. This meant she would need to learn a second language, and fast, if she wanted to achieve her goal. The grit of this woman is truly inspiring. Not racism, nor sexism, nor a financial or language barrier were going to keep her, from flying. And her determination paid off. Coleman was accepted into the Caudron Brothers School of Aviation in Le Crotoy, France. I imagine when she received that acceptance letter, it must have been one of those once in a lifetime feelings. Her hard work had paid off, and Bessie left for France in November of 1920. Bessie was the only non-Caucasian student in her class, and attending classes with white students must have been quite the change for Bessie, who had lived her whole life in a segregated country. The flight school took seven months. I wish we could know what was going through her mind the first time her plane lifted off the ground and into the sky. The first time she started the engine, hearing the propeller whirl and sputter to life feeling the shake and rattle of the engine reverberate through the plane and into her bones. That moment when the heaviness of metal, fuel, ground, and engine transition into the weightlessness of flight and sky. According to an article from the New York Times, Bessie learned how to fly in a Newport Type 82. This was a 27-foot biplane with a 40-foot wingspan and an open cockpit. There was no steering wheel. Instead, Bessie had to use a large wooden stick to control the plane's pitch and roll, while moving a rudder bar with her feet to control the yaw. There were no brakes, so to stop after a landing, a large metal skid on the plane's tail would drag along the ground. That would make for a bumpy landing. This particular plane was known to fail frequently, so Bessie learned how to carefully inspect it before each flight. But precaution didn't always divert disaster. One day during training, Bessie witnessed just how bad things could get when something went wrong. She saw another student die in a plane crash. She later said it was a terrible shock to her nerves. The planes Bessie was using were some of the first innovations in aviation. They were nowhere near as safe as the planes we fly today. Although witnessing this tragedy was a wake-up call as to just how dangerous the life of a pilot could be, it didn't deter her from her goal. I'm not sure anything could have. She learned loop-the-loops, figure eights, banking, and tailspins, and she loved it. The sky became her playground. It was the adventure she had been looking for. In 1921, Bessie Coleman became the first African-American and the first person of Native American descent in the world, man or woman, to receive an international pilot's license from the Fédération Aeronautique Internationale. That meant she could fly anywhere in the world. She had done it. She had made history. She was going home, a pilot. All at once, when she held her pilot's license in her hands for the first time, the words of those who told her she couldn't do it fell away in the wake of her airplane. Bessie Coleman could fly. By any means, if the i When Napoleon led Boulogne for a year, Zachary Davis. Jamie Redfin. Benjamin Jacobs. I'm Eric Marcus. Dan McMenany. Brian I'm three. Redford Lynch. Susan Archer, Alex Clifford, BT Newberg. Raven Forrest Ruskelto. Steven Guerra. Olsang Chris. David Crowther. And I, Liz Covart, will be speaking alongside 40 other great content creators. Ten, nine, three, this will be an event that you don't want to miss. Intelligent Speech is back. Intelligent Speech is an online conference dedicated to connecting the best independent educational content creators with their listeners this year's intelligent speech conference will be held on saturday april 24th starting at 10 a.m eastern time or for our friends across the atlantic 3 p.m london time tickets will be 30 dollars, but are available for only 20 as an early bird special you can get them online at intelligent speech slash shop No one knew who Bessie Coleman was when she left for France. When she came home, she was famous. Scores of reporters crowded her, and it was the first time that people were hungry to hear what she had to say. Bessie received her international license two years before Amelia Earhart received hers. She was invited to be the guest of honor at the musical Shuffle Along, According to an article from the Kennedy Center's Arts Edge, this musical with its all-black cast was a historic breakthrough for music. It proved that audiences would pay to see African-American talent on Broadway, and its rich original content would inspire and influence numerous musicals afterwards. President Harry Truman even picked the song I'm Just Wild About Harry from this show for his campaign anthem. When Bessie attended the show, everyone in the entire audience rose to give her a standing ovation. What a difference a year had made. Not long before she was working in a barbershop being rejected by pilot after pilot. Now she was being hailed as a hero. So what was next? According to the Encyclopedia of World Biography, she outlined her goals for reporters in 1922. She wanted to be a leader and inspiration for others to follow in her footsteps, and she wanted to found a flight school one day that would accept aviators of any race and gender. There was no way Bessie was going to do anything but fly for a living ever again. She knew that pilots could make a living performing in air shows, but she also knew she needed a little more experience before she was ready for that. So she headed back to France for some additional training, and in September of 1922, she was ready for her first air show. In front of an audience of approximately 3,000 people at Curtis Field, Long Island, Bessie performed what reporters called heart thrilling stunts for the crowd. She didn't have her own plane, so she was flying a borrowed JN 4. These planes, called Jennies, were open-topped biplanes and are exactly what you'd expect to see at an air show in the early 20th century. Jennies were originally developed as training aircrafts for the armed forces and quickly became a popular aircraft for barnstorming or stunt flying. This particular JN-4 was an updated design from the original. It was lighter than previous versions, making it better for stunts. According to the Glenn Curtis Museum, Jennies made the greatest overall contribution to early aviation. They were not easy to fly, and the pilots of the day used to say they were great to train on, because if you could fly a jenny, you could fly anything. Her show at Curtis Field was a huge success, and the first of many. Bessie traveled the country barnstorming and drawing in crowds. And she didn't just fly. She became bolder and bolder in her performances. She would parachute from the plane while her co-pilot took the controls. She would get out of the cockpit while in the air and walk along the wings of her plane while in flight. That is a whole different level of dangerous. One slip for barnstormers who did stunts like that meant death preceded by several excruciatingly long seconds of knowing they were going to die. Her stunts were widely covered in the press, and show after show, she wowed audiences with her risk and her skill. Soon, people were calling her Queen Bess. As her fame grew, she used her newfound prominence to encourage other African Americans, Indigenous Americans, and women to fly. She refused to perform at locations where African Americans were not admitted. Once, in her home state of Texas, the managers of an air show wanted to set up two separate entrances because they didn't want black people and white people to walk through the same gate. Queen Bess refused to perform unless everyone was allowed to enter her show through the same gate. The managers were not happy that their headliner was refusing to fly. They finally agreed to one gate as long as the audience was segregated into sections by race once inside. Bessie agreed to the compromise and, according to the National Women's History Museum, became famous for standing up for what she believed in. According to the New York Times, at one point she was cast in a film based on her own life story. Bessie was excited about this until she found out that the movie began with her appearing in rags and tattered clothing. Bessie decided then to turn the part down. She thought appearing in tattered rags on screen would be demeaning, so she quit, saying, quote, no Uncle Tom stuff for me. Bessie Coleman was on fire, and finally she had saved up enough money to buy her own plane. It was another Jenny, a military surplus JN-4. She had to go all the way to Santa Monica, California to pick it up. While there, she decided she might as well perform an air show, scheduling one near Los Angeles. But she would not make it to that show. Her plan was to fly to the fairgrounds in her new Jenny. When the plane reached a height of 300 feet, the motor stalled. There was nothing she could do but brace herself as she nosedived straight to the ground. It was a horrible crash. Bessie survived, but she was in bad shape. She broke a leg, fractured her ribs, and her new plane was completely totaled. It was the first time Bessie had come close to death. In typical, determined Bessie fashion, when the doctor arrived at the scene, she told him to patch her up so that she could make it to her show. This was not a simple patch job, however, and the doctor called an ambulance. Bessie wrote in a telegram to her friends, "'Tell them as soon as I can walk, I'm going to fly.'" Although the crash had been a bad one, it did not deter Bessie from the sky. But the road to recovery was long. She was hospitalized for three months, and it would be almost two years before she could regularly fly again. Part of that was due to her having a difficult time finding financial backers. Eventually, she was able to raise the money, lining up some shows in Texas. She also went on a lecture circuit, encouraging African Americans to pursue careers in aviation. The shows and lectures proved lucrative enough for her to put down a payment on another surplus Jenny. Her dream was still to open up a flight school, but that was an expensive dream. The more shows and lectures she did, the closer she came to making that dream a reality, but it was becoming obvious to her that she would need more of an income. To help with finances, she opened up a beauty shop in Orlando, Florida, hoping that would help her accumulate the funds she would need for her school more quickly. Soon, she had enough to make the final payment on her new Jenny. This time, she had it flown to her. William Wills, her mechanic and publicity agent, flew the new Jenny from Dallas, Texas to Jacksonville, Florida. According to an article from the Oklahoma Eagle, Wills had to make three forced landings along the way because the plane had been so poorly maintained. But despite a few hiccups, the Jenny made it to Florida, and things finally appeared to be falling into place. Bessie scheduled another air show for her new Jenny, set to run on May 1, 1926, this one in Jacksonville, Florida. It was meant to be nothing out of the ordinary. As usual, Queen Bess was planning on wowing the crowd with her risk and the precision of her stunts. The day before the show, Bessie and William Wills, her mechanic and publicist who had flown her plane from Texas, decided to take the new Jenny up and survey the field from the air. Bessie wanted to spot the best place for a parachute landing she was planning to do for the show. William was flying so that Bessie could survey the terrain from the rear cockpit without having to worry about managing the controls. When the Jenny reached somewhere between 3,000 and 3,500 feet, it accelerated suddenly, then went into a nosedive, then a tailspin that flipped it upside down. Bessie had not been strapped into her harness while she had been surveying the terrain. She was thrown out of the cockpit and into the air. As she fell, her plane and Wills fell beside her. She died instantly when she hit the ground. Wills managed to stay in the plane, but when it smashed into the earth, he died upon impact. Even if Bessie had been wearing her harness, she would have died. The plane was totaled. Wills' body was pinned under the plane after it crashed, and when rescuers tried pulling him out, one of them lit a match for a cigarette, which ignited gas fumes and consumed the wreckage in flames. After the fire burned out and the wreckage was examined, a wrench that had been used to service the engine was found jammed into the controls. When the wrench had become caught in the gears, it had caused the plane to go out of control and crash. William was Bessie's mechanic, but I couldn't find whether or not it was his wrench that had jammed the controls. Bessie was 34 years old when she died. William was 24. According to the New York Times, the mainstream press barely noted Bessie's death, focusing instead on William Wills, who had been white. Her death was widely covered in many black newspapers, often on the front page, but her life and her death were greatly underscored due to her race. There was a service held in Florida before her body was sent back to Chicago. In Chicago, around 10,000 people paid their respects, filing past her coffin in the south side of Chicago. Ida B. Wells, famous journalist and African-American activist, presided over her funeral service. Bessie Coleman was a pioneer in aviation. Her race and her sex for a long time kept her story off the front page. But her legacy has greatly impacted aviation, and her story continues to inspire According to the National Women's History Museum, in 1931, the Challenger Pilots Association of Chicago started a tradition of flying over her grave every year. In 1977, the Bessie Coleman's Aviator Club was formed by African American women pilots. A Bessie Coleman stamp was made in 1995. In 2006, she was inducted into the National Aviation Hall of Fame. In 2014, she was inducted into the International Air and Space Hall of Fame. When Mae Jemison, the first African-American woman to go to space in 1992, left Earth to orbit our planet 127 times, making history and flying further out into the vast unknown of the universe than most of us ever will, she carried a picture of Bessie Coleman with her. And she and Queen Bess... Two women who had made history sailed together toward the stars. Thank you so much for listening to the story of Bessie Coleman. I hope I did it justice, and I hope it inspired you as much as it has me. It took me, like, four takes to record that last part because I kept choking up. I'll be back again in three weeks with more history for you, so stay tuned, friends. In the meantime, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram. If you'd like to help support the show, you can join the ranks of the best patrons in all of existence at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. You can also make a one-time donation if you'd prefer that. You can access the link for that on the website under the support tab. That website is historycashpodcast.podbean.com. Sound effects and background music were licensed through Envato Elements, theme song from Audio Jungle. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay excellent. And until we meet again, go make some history.